0: When you talk about sort of like the, you know, exchange of of erotic services for money, that dates back to, to really temples.
1: I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, You can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. We are all brought here with a unique gift to give to the world. I feel like once you find it, unlock it within yourself, you can experience deep flow and abundance. We all deserve to live in our genius. But how do you find it? My process was through trying lots of things to rule out what I did not like, a deep process of trial and error. My company felt like I'd finally found the thing, my genius, but as the process became profoundly arduous, my energy was consistently depleted, I found I was much more irritable. What I did love about this company so dearly and why it felt like my genius was our mission. Speaking our mission into existence lit me up. So I was confused as to why my quote unquote genius wasn't being rewarded. It wasn't until I started to wind down the company and reflect that I realized a few things. Being good at a number of things is deceiving because we're air quotes good at it. We get validation for it, but it doesn't mean that it's our purpose. For me, making things happen, hustling and moving at an alarmingly unsustainable pace was something I was good at, at the expense of myself and wild burnout. So the next layer was analyzing my energy in relation to the work. The work is not good for us if we cannot sustain it. When I realized my infatuation with hustle culture and making rabbits appear out of hats, I spent some time unlearning. Last season, you heard all about the book, Power Versus Force, which radically changed my life and how I work. When I went back to the bones of the company, the pieces I loved versus the pieces I didn't, I realized the process of sharing our story was the thing I loved most, helping people see their genius. Now it makes sense. My podcast is the same mechanism, the piece I loved most. Speaking things into existence is the purpose. It just took a couple decades to figure it out. It's never too late to discover your unique gift. I am here with the incredible Caitlin Bailey. She is a force, She's hyper-intelligent, a true historian, and a crusader for humanity. She's the founder of the Old Prose Network, which creates conditions to change the status of sex workers in society. When I met Caitlin, I was admittedly new to the language and subject matter of the decriminalization of sex work. Her podcast has illuminated a lot for me and debunks the myths that society has continually perpetuated. I'm so excited to have her here because she's taught me so much and is a wealth of knowledge, especially in the times that we are living in. I think this is a really important conversation to have. So thank you, Caitlin, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked for this conversation. Yay. So one of the things that Caitlin does extremely well is she really understands the D. Tailed history of the oldest profession in the world, and so I wanted to just get us all sort of on the same page, the same framework. So Caitlin's going to give us a nice sort of brief historical overview of this context, so we can just continue on a place where we're all on the same page. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, I think it's important to to point out
0: that you know the exchange of erotic services for something of value. Predates us as a species, you know. Yale spent a few million dollars, I'm sure, teaching captive monkeys what money was, right? And so they um, introduced tokens and coins, and they set up like a little monkey store where they, uh, you know, gave them like grapes or cucumbers or whatever the you know they were most interested in. And as soon as the concept clicked, right, as soon as you know the the idea that these tokens were worth something and could be exchanged for something like a tasty treat, The first thing that happened is that a boy monkey gave a girl monkey a coin and then they had sex. It's the first thing that behaviorists uh, noted. And, you know, penguins engage in this behavior. This is something that is literally older than money. When you talk about sort of like the. You know, exchange of of erotic services for money that dates back to to really temples, which were sort of the organizing principle of so much of the world. Right. Temples, you know, I, I like to describe them as where all of the information is housed, right? So it's where uh, books are kept, right? It's the bank of the ancient world. It's the um, religious gathering space of the of the ancient world. It's also the civic gathering space of the ancient world. And if you look back at our oldest goddesses, chauvinistic archaeologists called them the primordial venuses. But like our ancient history is just littered, right, with female deities that are very explicitly sexual, right? The life-death- life cycle of the goddess is very much contained in in sexual expression and you know like in some parts of the world if a man wanted to lead then the first thing that he had to do was make a priestess prostitute come super hard and if he didn't do that then they removed his power and also sometimes his balls and like i've i've heard of worse systems frankly so you know it it's uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, priestesses in in these ancient temples, where we were, you know, where we had female deities, and we really respected the full life death life cycle. There's a real element of power there. Uh, you know, sex workers are often some of the the highest ranking women in the ancient world. You have, you know, Phryne in ancient Greece. You have like Horus in uh, ancient Rome, and then you know the Catholic Church does this weird thing, right, where they take the religion propagated by Mary Magdalene and decide to build a religion that women can't talk in, and they do that by casting Mary Magdalene. As a disgraced whore right as a, as, a, as a repentant woman and they use whore phobia right which you know goes back really to ancient Roman time and it's you know it sort of manifests itself differently in different parts of the world but they use that to silence not just the, you know the the ministry of Mary Magdalene uh, but also the ability of all women to speak and this is one of my big big ideas is that that phobia is actually the foundation upon which misogyny sets right and that sex workers have always presented kind of a existential threat to patriarchy right because like you can't have a patriarchy if you don't know who the dads are in a community, right? And so if you are, you know, having sex with multiple people, or if you are not dependent on one man, right? You are sort of ungovernable in that way, and it really blows out this idea that we should do lineage through the uh, the paternal line, that we should do property through the paternal line, that we should do governance and ruling based on like, you know, what circles of dudes think, and so. In the medieval period, the Catholic Church actually becomes one of the largest brothel owners in Europe, sort of casting sex workers as these defiled and degraded members of society that needed to be sacrificed in order to protect more compliant frankly women. And so you know the Catholic Church runs their, their Magdalen houses, uh, brothels, priests often run them, they're sort of like in male ownership, but it's very much sold in the in the medieval world as like a way of channeling male sexual aggression right away from a protected class of women. And so they really weaponize the Madonna whore complex that we that we still live with today. And then in Europe, there were municipally owned brothels, again, sort of. Grounded in this idea of containment and control, but in you know in Venice, for example, sex workers were during the, the Renaissance were some of the only women who were allowed access to the public library. They were allowed into spaces where decisions were being made. They were uh, they enjoyed more freedom of movement and more freedom of expression than the wives of Venice. And you know Veronica Franco, I think, is one of my favorite examples here of a a famous um, you know, publisher and poet of this period, who, you know, really influenced politics through her role as a as a courtesan. Of course, there are you know infinite stories of kings being effectively lobbied right by their by their favorite by their favorite sex worker. But I think the important takeaway here is that sex workers have been in spaces right that feminists have really only recently fought their way into and i think that's an important history to acknowledge in the u.s you know sex workers are we're we're often at the frontier um, of sort of any new venture right so like we are we are absolutely present in the earliest colonial period we are you know absolutely a part of the fabric of society I think madams uh, sort of indisputably settled the west we're often the largest landowner during the period of you know manifest destiny right when we're you know carving out you start with sort of work camps right whether they're lumber yards or mines for precious minerals or, or gold when you have that kind of like, male to female ratio, it creates a business opportunity that sex workers are able to to capitalize on. And so sex workers will often, yes.
1: I wanted Sorry. to say one thing that I, I love that mm-hmm. you anticipated me, but the correlation between sex workers being entrepreneurs and on the frontier of things, as much like the innovators of our society, they're innovating. And I think that's an important connection for us to make as we listen to you because I think so much we talk about this podcast right is entrepreneurship and this is culturally something we don't loop into that bucket but mm-hmm. we should loop in because it's obviously paved the way for a lot of like sort of like it's the same profile of like archetype of person mm-hmm. that's taking these risks and pushing culture forward in a meaningful way absolutely
0: and like the the archetypal whore is such a i think a rich right you know character and and, and holds a lot of symbolism much of which has been lost right to this like generational horphobia right that has stripped her of her power stripped her of her agency and sort of like imposed this this false narrative we'll get into it some of my favorite examples of of, of course it's it's not um you know when we're talking about Western history, it's very easy to sort of slip into to white history, but that is, you know, absolutely you know, sex workers are uh, in every culture, every nationality, every ethnicity, and they're absolutely represented in, you know, immigrants, for example. Uh, one of my favorite stories is Toy, who was one of the first Chinese women to immigrate to San Francisco and sort of created or was part of creating both Chinatown and also the Red Light District and sort of straddles this period before the aggressive criminalization of sex work, where she is actually able to use the U.S. court system to take clients that tried to defraud her by paying in fool's gold, who take some, you know, would-be controllers uh, from her own community that were trying to get her to pay them protection money, right? She uses the U.S. court system to advocate for herself and for her own business until the Chinese are excluded from our court system in a series of cases in the, the, you know, mid-1800s. And then she she loses that right, and the very explicitly white (laughs) supremacist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're thinly veiling now, but in the 1850s, they were saying the quiet part out loud, which is, you know, white supremacist uh, vigilantes were using this moral panic around white slavery, around this idea that, you know, immigrants and recently emancipated uh, black men in particular posed sort of like a unique sexual threat that needed to be cracked down upon. And so they, you know, That that starts in the the mid-1800s and really ramps up through the progressive era, culminating in the the white slave law of 1910. And so, Atoy goes from this very powerful figure where she is, you know, absolutely sort of controlling her own destiny, owns multiple businesses, homes, is sort of run out of town, and in the 1910s, you see the shuddering of brothels across the country. Um, and in San Francisco in particular, you see, I always hate, the you know like the first or one of the first cuz it's it's impossible to say that kind of thing especially when you're talking about the oldest profession but there was a significant moment in sex worker history which was on the precipice of closing the brothels in San Francisco 300 sex workers gathered on January 25th 1917 to protest a moral reformers crusade against their livelihood and what they what they asked of him was they said you aren't going to help us by shutting down the places that we live and work. If you want to see fewer women engaged in this work, then what you should be fighting for is higher wages for women, right? More access to housing and childcare, which of course is a, a familiar refrain, right? Like mm-hmm. this is not actually a problem that we can arrest our way out of. They lost that fight um, and the brothels were shuttered on Valentine's Day, 19, 1917. In the beginning of World War One again, sort of the the white slave panic metastasizes, so the, the moral purity element of the culture joins forces with the militarized element of the culture. And so in the name of protecting our soldiers from STIs, from malicious, manipulative women, right? There's a, a massive propaganda campaign. We actually deputized law enforcement to prosecute not just sex workers, but promiscuous women, right? So this empowers law enforcement officers to um, to arrest and to conduct these very invasive, very chauvinistic and not medically accurate STI tests on women who were guilty of, of walking alone or eating alone or making the wrong kind of eye contact with a police officer. This is known as the American plan, and I think it's one of the most undercovered elements of, of US history. And this, you know, lasts through World War One and World War Two. You know, the criminalization of, of sex work also leads directly to the the criminalization, surveillance and, and really oppression of the LGBTQ plus community. Red light districts are deeply intertwined with redlining, right, this kind of like racist campaign to devalue the property of, of black and immigrant communities. And in the the 1960s and 70s, you see a resurgence really of like all kinds of social justice movements and sex workers are no exception. The first sex worker-led organization is called WHO, which I love. It's Whores, Housewives, um, and Other Mothers. That becomes a Coyote, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, and that is spearheaded by um, an incredible woman in the sex worker rights movement, Margot St. James, who was, uh, I think, hilariously arrested for sex work, having never having never engaged in in sex work. She, she was like part of the beatnik generation, was just like hanging out in San Francisco, right? Like self-identified as a slut. But again, that line between like promiscuous and prostitution had always been blurred, just as like medically accurate information about women's bodies or women's bodies, period, had always been conflated with obscenity, right? This goes back to the obscenity laws of the 1860s. This is how Anthony Comstock sort of single-handedly delayed the widespread availability of birth control in this country by decades by just conflating information about birth control with pornography right? and using this crusade against pornography to to crack down on that. And so Margot St. James is arrested because a police officer is unable to distinguish a a party from a profession. She's brought before a judge. She famously says, uh, I've never turned a trick in my life. The judge says, any woman that knows that language is a professional convicts her, and she dedicates the rest of her life to this same crusade that I'm a part of, right? Which is like recognizing the deep intersections between whorephobia and the oldest stigma and this ongoing campaign to, to strip women of our uh, freedom of movement, freedom of expression, and really try to the coercive control right behind the way that we police communities and the way that we distribute resources. And so, yeah, that takes us pretty close to- Pretty close. Today. Yeah, I mean, the, most recently, just to be a nerd and, and feel complete on this- You know the the aids epidemic and the satanic panic of the 1980s certainly do no favors to the the sex worker rights movement and these obscenity laws sort of shape shift right from cracking down on what's going out in the mail to what is available online and my most sort of recent activating moment is in 2018 when Donald Trump signed uh, SESTA-FOSTA into law, which is a a federal law, Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking and Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, right? All of this is done in the name of cracking down on, on what we're calling white slavery of today, right? This was an attempt to erase sex workers from the spaces that we created on the internet to schedule and screen our clients. And so that is really sort of the moment where where sex worker history intersects with my personal history and was a real activating moment for me where I felt called back into politics.
1: So we're gonna get to your journey in a bit, but before, just because I wanna round out the history, obviously mm-hmm. we are currently in a time where women and LGBTQ plus rights are under deep threat. Absolutely. And I wanna talk about sort of your understanding of the intersection of sort of you know, the the apex of events and trends that are hitting that we're here and sort of, you know, why you believe we're here, but then also the call to action of what we can do to uh, make sure we stay free-ish.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we're we definitely in the midst of um, a regressive moral panic, right? And this is a, a movie that we've seen before. And so, so much is being done in the name of, you know, protecting vulnerable women, of protecting children. But just like moral crusades before, a lot of those efforts are about redirecting resources to law enforcement, doubling down on censorship, doubling down on criminalization. And so I think it's important for folks to understand that there are so many systemic issues that we cannot arrest our way out of. And sex work as a symbol of exploitation or this sort of caricature that we have about a stranger, often a person of color, right, kidnapping or coercing a, a young girl, often characterized as like a white girl, into sexual servitude is not the lived experience of so many people who who are suffering in the sex industry. Right. But coerced uh, sex trafficking in this country looks a lot more like domestic violence than it does like drug trafficking or other forms of, of trafficking. And victims of domestic violence need things right like housing and health care and access to childcare. They often don't need more arrests. They certainly don't need to be criminalized themselves, um, which is the system that we that we have now. And so, you know, 70,000 people are arrested every year in this country for prostitution related offenses. You know, they are overwhelmingly consensual uh, adults. You know, 98 percent of the federal budget for so-called anti-trafficking work is really directed at cracking down on immigrant owned businesses or people that are just posting ads online because that's easier for law enforcement than the the harder work of uncovering uh, you know violence within communities and the overwhelming amount of, of exploitation, is done within families, right, or within communities, right? So it's not about strangers coming into the community and kidnapping women, right? That's that's never been the real problem. That's always been a projection. We ought to be looking closer at the systems of power within our own communities that have been hiding generations of of sexual violence. I, I'm sure your listeners are already familiar that like the the nuclear family statistically is one of the most dangerous places for women and children, but it has been sold to us as a way of protecting us from this sort of demonized other. Uh, but I think it's important to re-examine what it is that we think we know about the oldest profession, recognize the sex workers that are already contributing members of our own community, and try to let go of the oldest stigma that is is holding us back.
1: There was a lot of things that I learned in your podcast and through talking to you around some of this, you know, as you said years and years and years, hundreds of years of propaganda around sex work. And so one of the things that I want to clarify for the audience, can you please explain the distinction why decriminalization is the term over legalization? Sure, of course. Yeah, there's a there's an important distinction to be made. Decriminalization simply means
0: removing criminal penalties, right? Which means that nobody engaged in this work is committing a crime. They can't be arrested. They can't be fired. They can't be evicted. They can't lose custody of their children just for engaging in consensual adult sex work. And what this does is it frees folks who are doing this work to report violence committed against them, right? To report domestic violence. To report violence at the hands of clients, to report violence or coercion um, at the hands of uh, abusive managers. And what it doesn't do is create a licensing scheme or regulatory structure that everywhere it's implemented inevitably creates this this two tiered system right so Nevada is an example of like legalization or, or regulation right where the only way to work legally in Nevada is to do so within the the very few licensed brothels that are out in the middle of the desert you have to comply uh, with like all of these house and county and state laws you're giving a huge chunk of your money to the house uh, in addition to to control. All of those laws are grounded in these really horphobic assumptions that we have to like protect the community from the the contagion, right, of, of sex workers. So if you want to do sex work in Nevada, you have to register with the local sheriff's department. That becomes a subpoenaable thing about you for the rest of your life. So you can imagine how this plays out in like child custody cases. You have to be hired by a brothel, which is like its sort of own can of worms. So because of all of those things, the overwhelming majority of sex workers working in Nevada are doing so outside of that legally licensed system, which is why Nevada is the only state in the union with legal, regulated prostitution, but has the highest arrest rate per capita for prostitution. So like licensing schemes or mandatory STIs or like any time that you're trying to get a stigmatized class to like put themselves on a list. This does not empower workers. It creates a state enforced monopoly that only benefits
1: brothel owners. Mm, Thank you for clarifying that. Um, That would blew my mind when you when I learned that, that that, like the amount of arrests that are happening when it's supposed to be sort of a uh, quote unquote system that we should want, that we believe should work or change things. And it's worse.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, and the, the, you know, the history of the, you know, legalization in Nevada is really grounded in the desires of overwhelmingly male brothel owners who are trying to leverage like, you know, community fear or, or client fear. Of STIs, right? Like the AIDS epidemic was a, a huge force in shaping the Nevada brothel system. But it's all grounded in this idea that sex workers or whores are yucky and to be contained and controlled, preferably by men uh, chosen by the state and given, given these licenses. And the the license to control.
1: The other thing that blew my mind is when we talked about whorephobia and this idea that oftentimes sex workers, you know, depending, there's a spectrum here of sex work, but that gifting, like the idea that someone pays your rent or buys you vacations is in exchange for sex is to make the other person feel like they aren't paying for sex. And that blew my mind because I was like, we had this conversation on sugar babies mm-hmm. and sort of escorts and this, this idea. And I was like, that is a hundred percent true. And so I want to talk about how this stigma around sex work and paying for sex in some ways, it hinders some, some of the the upside for women in sex work. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know,
0: you're, you're hitting on a, a concept that like I would consider sort of rather advanced in sex worker rights of like. Hierarchy, right, and so this is when folks within sex work will sort of use racist, classist, horphobic tropes in order to differentiate themselves, right, from other sex workers, often for the benefit of, you know, the the client, right. So this is like a a marketing scheme, right. And so you'll, you, I, I hear it all the time. It always makes me chuckle, but in a sad way, right, when you know, porn performers are like, I'm not a prostitute, right, like mm. I'm I'm a porn performer same same uh, strippers or anyone who isn't providing direct direct services. You'll see like, oh, I'm an escort, right? I'm not I'm not a street walker. So like all of this and and like and down and down and down and down and down. And then you get on to the street, you know, and it's like, well you know, I'm not I, I work on this corner and not that, right? Like it's it's infinite, infinite levels of I'm better than them. And so the way that I see this play out with like sugar baby, sugar daddy or More explicitly transactional relationships is because folks, overwhelmingly young women, are afraid. Right? Do not want to be. Do not want to be called whores. Right? Do not want to be considered a prostitute. And guys in this, right, have not really bought into to the idea that they are exchanging, you know, money for sexual services, then instead you get these like lavish, lavish vacations or these lavish gifts or these lavish dinners. And so in the man's mind, right, or in the client's mind, he's spent X amount of thousands of dollars or whatever on this woman, but in non fungible things like you can't pay your rent with wine that you drank like it doesn't matter how expensive the bottle of wine is and so it, this like horror phobia is sort of used again to disempower the provider right to sort of this this subterfuge or you know the criminalization and stigma around sex work prevents people from being able to to advocate not only for like a fair hourly rate that like they can use as as actual payment to like do things in their lives you know but also prevents the you know being able to to fully self advocate to protect themselves using the full force of the status as a as a paid professional really allows you to advocate for uh, for protection, right? advocate for condoms, but not in places where condoms are used as evidence against you or not in situations where the boundaries of intimacy have been deliberately blurred in order to make it feel like you're getting something, but but you're not.
1: I thought this was really interesting because I think oftentimes, you know, in quote unquote, modern feminism, there's these sort of myths we've ingested around sex work. And I thought that this was an important distinction just because when you start to understand in this capacity, a lot of the arguments that you can make uh, around like, women's empowerment when it comes to sex work it like they dissolve right like it's like this idea that like when you start to be like this is transactional and men don't want to admit they're paying for sex all of a sudden every argument that feminists make around sex work sort of disappears i'm talking about like the, the feminism that is sort of the the rhetoric the propaganda we've ingested not necessarily like the it's true like carceral true. carceral feminism or yes, abolitionist feminism yeah yeah so, of course and so that's why i wanted to bring it up because i think whatever tensions we feel around the subject matter, we have to acknowledge that the, the rhetoric we've ingested, but also these alternate points of view to help mm-hmm. us sort of really allow people to be fully seen and heard. And that's a lot of what you've helped me do. So I wanna thank you for that. And so I wanna talk about a couple things here, which is you said in 2018, you were called back to this work. Give me the story of why you felt called to, to work on this mission.
0: So I, I was, I, you know, working as a as a stand-up comic at the time, which is a complicated industry,
1: <laughs> also rife with, with misogyny,
0: rife with misogyny and exploitation. Right? You know, any industry that pays you in beer for the first, <laughs> you know, five or ten years is a anyway. Lots of opportunities. Uh, if you want to talk about exploitation, <laughs> I would love to talk about the entertainment industry. Um, oh, man, we could, that's y-
1: another episode. Yeah, yeah it's free, a whole other episode. Right? The free, free right, labor so, of Hollywood. Right, of course. But I was
0: subsidizing, right, my passion career uh, with, with sex work at the time. And I saw the immediate devastating impact that SESTA-FOSTA had on my community, right? So this is when, you know, Backpage was famously seized by the FBI. This is when Craigslist Erotic Services goes down. This is when Rent Boy goes down. So all of the places that, uh, you know, me and my peers have been using to schedule and screen our clients, right, that we've been using to share information with one another about harm reduction or, you know, potentially dangerous or frankly, just rude clients went away overnight. And so I saw people pushed into housing insecurity, pushed back into abusive relationships or people who were pushed into trying to trying to find clients in more public spaces. Right. Like, you know, bars or the street corner trying to get their immediate needs met. And so the fact that this was being build as a way to save women and it like really stuck in my craw when like Amy Schumer did like a PSA on how important it was to you know to make an exception to to article 230 which of course is an existential threat to freedom of expression on the internet in the name of protecting women and what's triply infuriating about this is that You know, Backpage in particular had a long and well-documented history of working with law enforcement to find victims of violence, people who were underage, right, runaway youth. There's pages and pages and pages of police officers from all over the country thanking, right, the technical support staff at Backpage for helping them with missing person cases or helping them uh, prosecute traffickers or abusers. But when those sites shut down, we didn't reduce sex work right we didn't reduce trafficking we didn't rescue a single victim we just made this profession that much harder you know the internet really created a lot of opportunities for sex workers to work as you know individual proprietors as entrepreneurs to work for themselves it released us from this system of having to work for for others right sort of like madams before the criminalization of sex work and then pimps after. And I I think it's important to talk about this like role of procurer or or pimp or or manager sort of depending on the situation. That's a direct result of criminalization, right? You don't see men engaged in sort of like heterosexual sex work, right? Before you start arresting women for promiscuity, Mm. for taking up space in public. But once women are no longer able to write work out of brothels, which are, again, overwhelmingly run and operated by women or able to, to go out and procure clients themselves. They need a, a male escort in order to avoid arrest. So the protection that's being mm. offered to sex workers is from the police. Right. So so cops have always been our top predator in this industry, especially after the criminalization and the wake after SESTA-FOSTA is no exception. I mean, it's I feel like like almost every month we get a horrific story about, you know, a different police officer abusing his power to coerce people that he knows or suspects are exchanging erotic services into basically raping them, right? There was a a, a recent example, I think just a few years ago, of a a cop in Columbus, Ohio, who had a a long record of picking up women who had previous drug charges and basically offering them do you want to be arrested for prostitution today or do do you want to blow me? And then one woman, Donna Dalton, Fought back. It was an undercover police officer, and he had pulled his car against a wall so that the passenger door you couldn't you couldn't open the passenger door. Said something to to this woman who was a sex worker. She felt threatened and fought him with a pen. Um, and then he shot her eight times close range. The criminalization of sex work does not offer any protections right Right. we know what prohibition does to markets it only pushes it further underground it only enables abusers to take advantage of a further marginalized further stigmatized community sex workers want to be able to report violence committed against us whether they're serial rapists or, or serial killers but Because of this like sort of toxic relationship with law enforcement that, again, is the direct result of the criminalization of our work, we can't do that. And that makes all of our communities less safe.
1: And I also want to illuminate that, you know, the but sex work can often be used to get yourself out of abusive dynamics. Hundred percent to build businesses, all the other ways that like, if you're not, you know, that what encompasses the universe of sex work. And so Mm -hmm. I just want everyone to stay in like, you know, the holistic mindset of the Mm -hmm. spectrum of what sex work is. But I think that's really important to acknowledge because I think oftentimes we go to one definition in our mind when there's a multitude of uses for sex work for people to sometimes get them, pull themselves out, have agency out of bad circumstances. And so we have to remember that as we're talking about sort of the criminalization of it.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you, sex work is many things to many people. Right. And, you know, people of all genders participate in sex work. I think it's really important for us to expand. And there's definitely criminalized and not criminalized forms of of sex work. Right. There's a you know sort of strip club in every town. Mm. There's uh, only fans work. There's an infinite spectrum, right? Like human sexuality is complex and multifaceted, and and so is the oldest profession. And people do this work in many ways and for many reasons and have many experiences with it. So this is to say nothing like I don't I'm not you know, I'm not trying to sort of collapse the experience of sex work into into a different into a different narrative. Right. There's there's space for multitudes here. I absolutely agree with you. I think that sex work has funded more female entrepreneurs than like all of the grants in all than of all the the venture grants. capital. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, um, <laughs> and for for sure, arts careers. Right. You name it oh yeah there's one more thing that i wanted to say is that i i think you're absolutely right there's a lot of evidence to suggest that sex work is an off-ramp from abusive relationships and so there was one um there was a comparative study that was done i want to say in like 2017 2018 but don't quote me on this scott stern uh was one of the the lead researchers and so craigslist erotic services was you know was a a site where you could you know sort of post an ad uh, for erotic services just like it just like it says some of your listeners may remember you know, going and and reading the funny things that, that people would write on their local Craigslist erotic services. But that became available in different cities at different times. And so Scott wanted to study, right, the impact of what it looks like when you remove barriers to access, suspecting that barriers to access sort of create barriers to safety. And so when you made it easier for sex workers to advertise their services, when you made it easier for them to schedule and screen their clients, the female homicide rate dropped on average, 17% Whoa. just by making Craigslist erotic services available. So that's what I really want to stress to your listeners, right? Is like if you care about the physical safety of women and girls, right? If you care about violence against women, then the full decriminalization of sex work is the only legal model that. Respects the human dignity of sex workers and directly leads to a reduction in violence and STIs. And so one of Scott's theories right is that women who felt like they were on the edge of a domestic violence encounter because Craigslist erotic services was so available they were able to get the quick money that they needed to get themselves out of that situation. In addition to reducing opportunities for serial predators, right, by implementing scheduling and screening practices. So those are the sort of two ways that making it easier for sex workers to, you know, advocate for themselves, you know, take their own safety precautions, reduces violence against women in a broad
1: way. That's a wild stat. Uh, this is why I love data. I think data is so fascinating. So, in twenty eighteen, when you decided, you know, all this stuff, you see this affecting your community, you seeing these sites go down, you decided, okay, I have to do something about this. And so, how did you derive at the old pros? How do you derive at the mechanisms of which you are creating change?
0: Sure. So, you know, I started as as a comic telling telling my story, right, to groups of of drunk people, which is a you know a great way to start. Um, And so I, at that point, I, I'd started the Oldest Profession podcast. I was using my history degree for the first time in my adult life and and already sort of pushing back against the misogyny in comedy, which is a, a subculture that really sort of celebrates libertine. There's a lot of like, you know, sort of open and unapologetic like drug use, but still holds, you know, very regressive ideas about women and sex. And so I'd found, you know, that my that my male peers in comedy were just aghast, right? Mind blown that, that someone that they knew, presumably respected, although that's like confusing in retrospect, had participated in sex work. And so I, I wrote my first one woman show, which was about coming out to my father. And that was in, in 2016. But when SESTA-FOSTA hit I I really leaned back on my my political training in my early twenties. I worked for a progressive political consulting firm. I was one of those annoying people standing on street corners, like you know, do you have a minute for civil liberties um, or Planned Parenthood? Um, and so I I had an organizing background. And so I, I you know, I started going to sex worker rights conferences, right? I started started looking around at sex worker advocacy groups and discovered this like long legacy of groups that had been advocating for this for, for decades. And I accepted a position as the founding communications director for decriminalized sex work through connections that I'd made at, at these conferences. Um, and my background in in stand up comedy and saying things in the shortest possible way, which is not what we've been doing on this podcast so far but is a one of the skills that i theoretically have and so for two years i traveled the country and talked to legislators in state houses about this issue right telling them about you know how we can reduce stis the world health organization released a study suggesting that by decriminalizing sex work we could reduce new hiv infections by a third when we did decriminalize indoor sex work in Rhode Island, gonorrhea rates dropped 40 percent, and reported rates dropped 30 percent. Like the, wow, these are demonstrably positive results by simply removing the threat of criminal penalties from people engaged in in the oldest profession. Right, just the removal of that threat increases the negotiating power of providers, increases our ability to to advocate for condom use and to report crimes committed against us and to take precautions that protect ourselves and our community. And I found that, you know, legislators really across a pretty broad ideological spectrum were open to this idea, but they were terrified of their own constituency and they were very, very susceptible to things that sound like compromises on this issue that create sort of a dystopian nightmare future for sex workers, right? So this, for example, legalization or regulation, right? Uh, Like, yeah, we should definitely legalize sex work and mandate STIs and get everyone on a list and make sure they can't leave their house after 8 p.m. and that children can't look at them. You know, it's like, that's not gonna go anywhere. Or There's another alternative called end-demand laws. This is sometimes referred to as the Nordic model. But this idea is that Everyone participating in sex work is a helpless victim with false consciousness that, you know, shouldn't be able to make their own choices. And every client of a sex worker is essentially engaged in paid rape. And so we should treat every client of a sex worker, every landlord of a sex worker, every manager or scheduler of a sex worker like the violent trafficker that they are. So. It's a model that purports to be feminist, but has detrimental impacts everywhere that it's been implemented. Because when you criminalize the client side of the transaction, you reduce the negotiating power of the provider, right? So like if, let's say, I'm trying to negotiate a date between you and I, right? You you are interested in seeing me for the lovely erotic massage on on Thursday, but before I give you the address to the place that I work out of, I want to do some screening, right? I want your legal name and I want you to tell me about other providers that you've seen under the Nordic model or under these end-demand models, you'd be an insane person to give me that information, right? So I can't tell if you are a predator posing as a client or if you're just a reasonable, rational person that doesn't want to provide incriminating evidence. So what you end up doing is you sort of force sex workers into doing more for less, into taking more risks, And you also increase the stigma against sex work by sensationalizing and promoting this idea that it's like the grossest, dirtiest, most degrading thing that a person can do. So in Norway, famously, they had, they called it Operation Homeless, where uh, it was not illegal to sell sexual services, but it was illegal to rent an apartment to somebody who made their living selling sexual services. So police officers would helpfully identify sex workers in the community and then report them to the landlord and let them know that if they were not evicted, then they themselves would be charged with promoting prostitution. This feels like a very basic and transparent idea, but it is impossible to help people that you are hunting. And so the end demand policy is grounded in the idea of eradicating sex work. Right. The goal of end demand laws is to make something older than money go away. Right. Forever. And so because that's the objective, it really is impossible to provide accessible services to to help people because you're you're coming at it from efforts to eliminate their occupation. Right. And so you end up uh, giving more money to law enforcement. Right. Which that I think is a very good litmus test of like, is this a good policy will this help people like ask yourself the question of like who's enforcing this right because you know law enforcement does not have a a good record when it comes to like providing needed services to to vulnerable people right that's not what they do so you know law enforcement of course surveils sex workers sex workers are still afraid of reporting crimes committed against them because if they admit that they were engaged in sexual services, then now now they're on one of those stigmatized lists, right? And so a police officer is going to helpfully start coming around to arrest their clients who are indistinguishable from from predators, all while increasing the stigma against their work in their community and really activating uh, laws that further isolate sex workers, right? Another important thing to keep in mind is that sex workers often work together for their own safety. Right. So people will, you know, be like a roommate situation or, you know, doing a double or somebody, you know, two people are doing sex work and one person posts the ad for both of them. So one of those people will be charged with trafficking or with pimping Mm -hmm. or with procuring because we really want to divide the world into into villains and victims. And so The the thing that I want to stress about end demand laws is that everywhere that they've been implemented, it hurts the very people that these laws claim to want to help. And those metrics are very clear. Right. You see an increase in violence against sex workers everywhere that these laws are implemented.
1: It reminds yeah. me of HR because it's like human resources, right? Is designed to protect the company, yeah. not the employee, which is why the employees, when they, do, they don't report things, largely because companies don't always have their back, right? And so we talk yeah, a lot of course. this like in terms of like, whatever, inclusion in the workplace, right? Why HR is not mm-hmm. a great option for people of color and all yep. these sort of like, so it, it's a very like parallel, I think example for people to understand that like these misaligned incentives hinder, they don't help. Yes. I, I just want to say that like, I share many of the stated
0: objectives of you know anti-trafficking organizations or abolitionist organizations, like I would love to work towards a future where nobody engages in work that they find soul-sucking or degrading in order to get their needs met. Right? I think it's awful that people work um, as sex workers if that is not something that they want to do. I think it's awful that people you know work in in slaughterhouses or in mines or doing any number of exploitative, undercompensated work. And so if but the way to reduce exploitation is not by increasing criminal penalties for people involved. It's by increasing wages. It's by making housing more available. It's through universal health care. It's by expanding access to, to safe and affordable child care. Like there are absolutely things that we can do that reduce one's vulnerability to exploitation. And none of it involves arresting people for anything except reported violence and right. conflating erotic expression with violent exploitation
1: is a recipe that will always,
0: always hurt women.
1: If you guys love Caitlyn as much as I do, you're lucky because next week we are bringing her back for part two of this episode, where we get deeper into her personal journey. I'm so excited for you guys to listen. So make sure to tune in next week. Thank you all so much for listening. It really does mean the world. I call this the little pod that could. To continue to listen or become a subscriber, you can find Do The Work on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, anywhere that you can find podcasts, you can find Do The Work. It makes a huge difference if you could review, share, and rate this podcast. Thank you to Wine Designs Media, Lenny Skolnick for that musical intro, Lindsay Johnson on the graphics, Olivia Christian on social. I am so grateful. I hope you find or continue living in your purpose.